Hello, and welcome to the Clinical Care Options Infectious Disease Podcast. I'm your host, Sarah Anderson. This episode features content from an educational program titled COVID-19, Which Drug, When, and Why? Anti-Inflammatory Agents and Immunomodulators. During this podcast, Dr. Vikram Mukherjee, Assistant Professor of Medicine in the Division of Pulmonary, Critical Care, and Sleep Medicine at New York University School of Medicine, and Director of the Medical Intensive Care Unit at Bellevue Hospital in New York, New York, discusses the role and timing of anti-inflammatory agents and immunomodulators in the treatment of COVID-19. For more information about Dr. Mukherjee and for a link to the full online educational program, including downloadable slides, please visit the link in the show notes for this episode. Now, let's get started and hear what Dr. Mukherjee has to say about anti-inflammatory agents and immunomodulators in the treatment of COVID-19. Hi, everybody. My name is Vikram Mukherjee, and for the next 15 or 20 minutes, we'll be talking about COVID-19, which drug, when and why, with a specific focus on anti-inflammatories and immunomodulators. Again, my name is Vikram Mukherjee. I'm an assistant professor of medicine in the Division of Pulmonary Critical Care and Sleep Medicine at NYU School of Medicine. I also direct our medical ICU at Bellevue Hospital in New York City, and happy to be here. So with that, we will start to quickly review the therapeutic classes dictated by SARS-CoV-2 pathogenesis. You know, two years into the pandemic, I think uh, we understand how the virus behaves, how it interacts with the host immune system, and how these different phases work. Uh, but just to reiterate, there is early infection where there is active viral replication going on, followed by a pulmonary phase. And then usually there is triphasic response with a hyperinflammation phase at the back end where the host in- immune response, the host inflammatory response often on causes the clinical signs and symptoms pertinent to that phase. We're just going over the clinical signs and symptoms. The first phase, the early infection when there's active viral replication is manifested by lymphopenia mild constitutional symptoms, fever and a dry cough. This may progress to shortness of breath and hypoxia with abnormal chest imaging in the form of a viral pneumonia and sometimes liver dysfunction as well. And sometimes patients can have a hyperimmune response which is manifested with acute respiratory distress syndrome, SIRS physiology, elevated inflammatory markers, and so on. The treatment goals are extremely clear. In the first phase, it is to Use of antivirals is common to reduce transmission, stop viral replication. But in the hyperinflammation phase, it's mostly to dampen, to moderate the immunopathogenesis and reduce the morbidity mortality that's often on a, a, a sequence of the host immune system here. With this in mind, for today's talk, we'll be talking mostly about the host inflammatory response, why it, were, why it is there and what we can do to dampen that response. Um, the triggers are very clear. Uh, there are, as many of us know, SARS-CoV-2 spike proteins on the outside of the virus. There is ACE2 receptors, which bind to the ACE2 receptors here. This often only lead to anti-spike antibodies, which form a cascade of the immune system going forward, and a huge inflammatory cascade with IL-1s, IL-6s, macrophages and monocytes being delivered, leading to pulmonary edema, pulmonary fibrosis, thromboembolic events, and so on. So it's this post-immune response that we are trying to dampen here with all the immunomodulators that we have on board. We'll start with the high titer convalescent plasma. NIH and IDSA guidelines are pretty clear. The NIH guidelines, the panel recommends against the use of COVID-19 convalescent plasma for treatment of hospitalized patients without impaired humoral immunity. The IDSA guidelines also 
recommend against COVID-19 convalescent plasma for hospitalized patients with COVID-19. For people who are not in the hospital, the NIH guidelines suggest that there is insufficient evidence for the panel to recommend for or against, while the IDS is a little bit different. They recommend that for ambulatory patients, for outpatients, with mild to moderate COVID-19 at high risk for progression to disease, severe disease, who have no other treatment options, the panel suggests FDA qualified high titer COVID-19 plasma early in the onset. So again, a very narrow role for convalescent plasma in this setting. The NIH says pretty much never use it. The IDSA guidelines are a little bit more prescriptive in terms that you may use it in a patient who has a high risk for progression and has no other treatment option. But to summarize, a very small role of high titer convalescent plasma in the setting of COVID-19, be it early or in the late hospitalized phase. The second therapeutic, which has much more robust data to it, is corticosteroids. And this is standard of care now based on robust data coming out of many, many centers. So this is a JAMA article looking at all the published papers. Essentially, there is the mortality benefit when you use systemic corticosteroids with regard to 28-day all-cause mortality in critically ill patients. We won't have the time to go over each of these uh, study trials, but as you can see here, there is signal towards benefit in patients when you use steroids. And as many of us know, this is now standard of care. Uh, there is still some studies going on on what ex exact dosage to follow, whether it's 20 milligrams or 6 milligrams, but irrespective, steroids are standard of care for COVID-19 and hospitalized patients or hypoxic uh, or uh, with COVID-19 infection. When you look at subgroup analysis of systemic corticosteroids, this is very interesting data on invasive mechanical ventilation. There may be a signal of uh, benefit, but in all comers, again, there is a benefit in terms of using corticosteroids. There are patients who take vasoactive medications who are hemodynamically stable have more benefit than none. The benefit is across all age groups and are statistically significant. Males and females both uh, do well on steroids. And irrespective of the benefit of steroids, of course, is in the later phase of the disease, when there is a hyperimmune response and you're trying to dampen the host system. The only word of caution here is that if you use it early on in the disease process, you may not have as much benefit. In fact, in patients who are not hypoxic, you might have a sign of detriment given that there is an active viral replication. Dampening the host immune response might extend the viral proliferation in that setting. Irrespective, in patients who are hypoxic or in the hospital for COVID infection or in the ICU, corticosteroids are standard of care and should be used routinely. The next immunomodulator, and this has come of work in the COVID-19 pandemic, is tocilizumab. It's an IL-6 inhibitor. The data behind that is quite robust as well. This is the recovery trial from the NHS. And uh, just to go over how this trial was designed, is that it was a multi-center, factorial, randomized, open-label, controlled phase three trial, adult patients, hospitalized with clinical evidence of COVID-19, hypoxic, uh, with high CRPs. And the CRP was used as a marker of uh, exaggerated immune system. Within 21 days of randomization, given tocilizumab plus usual care versus just usual care. And the primary endpoint was all-cause mortality at 28 days. Secondary endpoints were time to discharge, received of IMV, invasive mechanical ventilation. Of note, almost everybody in both settings got corticosteroids because that was standard of care by the time this trial was uh, started. Here are the Kaplan-Meier curves. Mortality, nice benefit to it. 
as you can see here, p-value 0.006, and tocilizumab plus usual care versus usual care, a nice splaying of the Kaplan Meier curves, relative risk reduction of 14% down to 0.86. Secondary endpoint, also positive, a uh, good marker here, reduced receipt of mechanical ventilation in patients not receiving ventilation at time of randomization. So again, good signal here, tocilizumab, when used in the right setting, has a benefit to it, both for mortality and for progression of disease. The one thing that I would just want is that we want to make sure that patients are not infected with any other pathogen besides SARS-CoV-2 during the use of tocilizumab. Having both immunomodulators on both steroids and tocilizumab might make existing infections go wild. So one of the things you want to make sure before using tocilizumab is there are no bacterial pneumonias, bacterial infections on top of your COVID-19 infection at the time of initiating therapy. Moving on, the next immunomodulator that we'll talk about is a JAK inhibitor, uh, baricitinib. This was studied um, and was published in New England last year by the ACT-2 trial from the NIAID. The results for baricitinib plus remdesivir versus remdesivir in severe COVID-19. The synopsis is 30% higher odds of improvement in the clinical status at day 15 with baricitinib plus remdesivir versus placebo plus remdesivir. And here are other uh, ordinal scales in patients receiving high flow oxygen or non-invasive ventilation improvement at enrollment. Patients had quicker recovery rate ratio for recovery was improved at a statistically significant manner. No improvement mortality, of course, in this setting. This led to the FDA to uh, approve of an EUA for baricitinib. Now, the wording is as follows. It, the FDA permits the emergency use of the UA of baricitinib for treatment of COVID-19 in hospitalized adult and pediatric patients above two years of age, uh, requiring supplemental oxygen, non-invasive, invasive, or on ECMO. The recommended dosage under the EUA, adults and pediatric patients more than nine years of age, four milligrams orally once daily, and uh, pediatric patients two to nine, two milligrams orally once daily ideally for 14 days or if discharged. The renal functions, liver function, and CVC must be determined before the first dose. If you have renal impairment, there are some dose adjustments required, as you can see on the left here. If you have other lab derangements, there might be some things to consider as you continue this for the duration of the illness. So in, in that setting, the NIH guidelines for therapeutic management of non-hospitalized patients uh, with COVID-19. So this is the guidelines are stratified by how sick the patient is. And I want to emphasize that, that dexamethasone in the non-hospitalized, non-hypoxic patient may have a signal of damage, may have a signal of harm, because it can worsen the duration of viral replication, since this would be the early phase of illness. Disease severity, discharge from the inpatient setting, supplemental oxygen required, insufficient data to recommend dexamethasone, Discharge from inpatient setting in stable condition, no oxygen, no role of immunomodulators. Discharge from ED, despite new or increasing need for supplemental oxygen. Again, this is atypical, but when you have a hospital that's full, that's surging, and there is not enough staffed beds, you may have to have a scenario where patients are being discharged carefully from the ED with home support. In that setting, dexamethasone has a role to play. Moving on or changing gears. These are the NIH guidelines for management of patients with COVID-19 or hospitalized. Again, if the patient is hospitalized for incidental COVID, hospitalized but does not require supplemental oxygen, 
NIH very clearly recommends against dexamethasone. The patient's not hypoxic. We should not be using dexamethasone here. Hospitalize and require supplemental oxygen. Remdesivir, definitely. Dexamethasone, definitely. Standard of care. For patients on the right here, patients who are sicker, high flow oxygen, non-invasive or invasive, we should be using dexamethasone plus remdesivir and probably strongly consider one of the biologics, either baricitinib or tocilizumab, depending on how sick the patient is. Again, use of either of these medications, we should clearly rule out a bacterial superinfection so that double immunomodulation doesn't cause the immune system to be so suppressed that the bacterial infection can overwhelm the patient's defenses. Lastly here, immunomodulator treatment by WHO progression score. Just to go over this, asymptomatic, symptomatic, phase three symptomatic with assistance required, hospitalized with oxygen, higher oxygen requirements, and the last two are critically ill patients who need mechanical ventilation. The recommendations are very reasonable. Dexamethasone if you're hypoxic, anti-IL-6 if you're hypoxic, and so on. Anakindra, JAK2 inhibitors and amitinib in this particular fa fashion. Monoclonal antibodies in seronegative patients, especially for high-risk patients, should be used early in the course. Of course, keep in mind that the strain or the variant of concern might uh, influence which monoclonal antibody you're using. Interference, anti-TNFs, anti-C5AR, all considerations for patients in this spectrum as well. There is pretty strong evidence for the use in patients with COVID-19, especially in the hospitalized population. Uh, steroids being front and center of the approach, uh, IL-6 inhibitors uh, and baricitinib also being strong considerations. Heterogeneity in COVID-19 pathophysiology may lead to variable treatment responses. Along with that, um, heterogeneity on the variant of concern that's causing current infection might influence which immunomodulator to use, especially in the early phase of the disease when you're using monoclonal antibodies. Limitations to current studies of immunomodulators used in COVID-19 necessitate RCTs. And there is need to better understand risk of secondary infections, not just bacterial, but also fungal. And uh, there has to be more equitable access to immunomodulators for COVID-19. That's key. We know well through this pandemic that the communities that have poorer access to healthcare are the ones that have the brunt of this disease. So equitable access to immunomodulators is absolutely front and center to any approach. With that, uh, we will end our talk here. Thank you. And uh, I hope it was useful. Have a wonderful day. Thank you very much to Dr. Mukherjee and thank you to our listeners for joining in. As a reminder, to view the full COVID-19 Which Drug, When, and Why program on the Clinical Care Options website, click on the link in the show notes for this episode. And please be sure to check back regularly for more episodes on important infectious disease topics. Thank you. Thank you.